Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey, my co-host Phil Clyde, author most recently of Uncertain Ground, Citizenship in an Age of Endless Invisible War. Our guest today, the eminent James Poulos, editor of the American Mind at the Claremont Institute, founder and editorial director of Return. Me, I'm the knocker off of tall hats, Jacob Siegel. May you continue to be a person. Speaking of continuing to be people, uh, we are talking today about the work of Jacques Roule, who is a, a guy I, I feel it's a daunting task to try and summarize the legacy of Jacques Roule in 30 seconds. But I, I would put a partisan fighter, French resistance fighter on the list, Christian anarchist, author of books like Propaganda, The Formation of Men's Attitudes, the technological society, and what is the one, uh, I have it at home, James, you might know, the word, um, uh, what's the title of that one? Uh, other great books that are, are lesser known, unfortunately, part of what makes this daunting is that Elul came to be, uh, for a number of years, principally identified with Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, because one of the few artifacts found in Kaczynski's Montana cabin was a copy of the Technological Society, which is, you know, only to say that he had good reading habits, which frankly, I don't think is all that uncommon for high level, um, you know, terrorists, lone terrorists of the Kaczynski variety. I, I think many of them probably have elevated reading habits. And uh, you can hardly hold that against Elul, who I, I would say also one final piece of trivia about him was Maltese, which few people know. So he was born in Bordeaux, fought in the French resistance, uh, was a, awarded, um, uh, given a, a recognition posthumously by Yad Vashem uh, among the righteous for his work saving Jews during World War II, but was of Maltese extraction originally. And we're going to be talking about the third section of the fifth chapter of Elul's book on propaganda. That section is called Propaganda and Grouping. And along with that, uh, a very intuitive pairing, we've got Marilyn Manson's record, Mechanical Animals. So that's what I have by way of a, a preamble here. We're happy to have James on. We'll also be talking about his book, Human Forever, in the course of the conversation, which dovetails with a lot of the themes in both the Elul and the Marilyn Manson. And uh, James, why don't you tell us a bit about why you made, made these, why you picked the Elul, why you picked the Manson, and briefly what you saw as the connection initially between the two. By the way, you, 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 you know, our podcast listeners won't be able to see it, but Jake is obviously doing this podcast with, you know, bright red hair, prosthetic breasts, you know, a corset. It's good look. Yeah, well, I mean, that would make it no different than the other podcast recordings we've done recently. <laughs> yeah. Just happened to align with uh, the Marilyn Manson this time. 
this is the world that we live in. Um, <clears throat> where can I begin? Well, so, you know, the, uh, the passage from, uh, from propaganda that to me felt like the one that needed to come out was, uh, was this section on the sociopolitical effects of propaganda on the churches. Elul was a fairly ecumenical guy. He was really shaped by and wrote under uh, radio conditions, whereas uh, someone like McLuhan uh, was a lot more of a, a sort of TV age media theorist. And so what you get with propaganda is you get a kind of presentation of a, a totalizing technical force um, that is a little bit different from what McLuhan gives you. And, and arguably, Elul is, is more valuable when it comes to an analysis of sort of oral media, uh, whereas McLuhan um, is the guy if you want to do visual. Back in the year 1998, <clears throat> music had kind of reached an apex, I think, culturally, where it was something that was listened to as well as something that was watched. It was a time when Total Request Live would have a figure such as Marilyn Manson on and would you know, chart his video debuts at number one. And it was right there in Times Square and the kids were sort of screaming out the window and the culture was very organized around the fusion of of sound and vision, as David Bowie memorably put it, <clears throat> into a dominant kind of art form, um, an art form that wasn't just for entertainment purposes, although certainly it was that, but one that strove to say serious and consequential things about uh, what was unfolding in public life and private life. Uh, McLuhan said that our artists are our early warning systems in our culture. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, looking back on, on the, the most productive years of, uh, of Marilyn Manson, the band, 98 through 2000 or so, it just seems obvious that, you know, we were warned. Um, and uh, some of that is, is a, a consequence of the, the artists involved. Um, but some of it is a consequence of, of art itself and the, the, the formative pressures that uh, technology in the world were imposing on uh, everyday life. Um, and so from Elul, you get a description of a sort of dilemma that, that Christianity faces where, you know, I'll just quote this chunk here, because Christians are flooded with various propagandas they absolutely cannot see what they might do that would be effective and at the same time be an expression of their Christianity. Propaganda makes the propagation of Christianity increasingly difficult. The psychological structures built by propaganda are not propitious to Christian beliefs. So, you know, when I, when I read this, I'm reminded of uh, the, the great Marilyn Manson B-side called The Astonishing Panorama of the End Times. Uh, which is as emblematic as any of the tracks from that era of the way that Marilyn Manson repeatedly tried to 
sort of understand and reflect what was happening to Christianity in a in an age of mechanical animals. Let me say something though. I, I've, uh, particularly on this record, with the imagery that I used, I tried to look at the things that I was taught growing up about Christianity in a different way. You know, I looked at the image of Christ on the cross and the story of him as someone who was a revolutionary with dangerous ideas. And I started saying to myself, oh, I can relate to this story now. I'm not going to dismiss it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interpret it in a different way. So everybody should, you, know, you have to be open-minded. You know, I'm sure when you were young, you didn't want to listen to what your parents were trying to tell you to believe in. You know, she's going to find her own. Maybe someday she'll become a nun. You don't know. All right, so let's let's maybe... Take that, that that's great uh, as a as a sort of overview. Let's take a step back maybe and talk about Alul and what he thinks propaganda is, like what we're talking about, right? And Alul has this notion that we live in a technological society. And that's not just stuff, but rather there's a way in which everything in modern life gets subject to a kind of rationalizing process right to sort of make things sort of rational and efficient in terms of how we go about work working with machines so sort of trying to govern society etc and for propaganda there's a diversity of propaganda but what he says all the different types of propaganda have in common is a concern with effectiveness Propaganda is made, first of all, because of a will to action, for the purpose of effectively arming policy and giving irresistible power to its decisions. Whoever handles this instrument can be concerned solely with effectiveness. That is the supreme law, which must never be forgotten when the phenomena of propaganda is analyzed. Ineffective propaganda is no propaganda. The instrument belongs to the technological universe. And so it's not, it, it's not concerned with communication, it's something. No, it's, something it's concerned with you know mechanical efficiency. Yeah, and not just in the sense of uh, a something directed at exigencies or at war. I think a lot of people hear propaganda, and their immediate thought is either that propaganda is a kind of secretion of autocratic or totalitarian regimes. Solely or that propaganda is something that, you know, even democratic regimes might engage in in times of war as a kind of special contingency means of riling up, rousing extraordinary passions against the enemy. So that's the sort of standard understanding of propaganda is, as something that is either extraordinary because it's the methodology of uh totalitarian or autocratic regimes that need to go against human nature in some way and, and get people to be invested in things they wouldn't naturally be invested in. Or it's extraordinary because it's a contingency of war and required to rouse, uh, you know, abnormal passions. But Elul's point is one what Phil just laid out, which is that propaganda is concerned chiefly with efficiency and directed action. But secondarily, in its sort of underlying sense, propaganda is a product of all technological societies, yeah. of democracies, of autocracies. It is a product of technological societies because it is very simply the means by which the technological society harmonizes the various 
uh, arms involved. It's the means, propaganda is the means by which this vast technological organism harmonizes its various parts, driving them towards a particular end, which is the efficiency. So it's and you and know, it's, it's not, not like just directed at societies yeah. or only war. Yeah. And it's not just directed at like the uneducated rubes, right? It's actually the other way around. There's a good bit that sort of outlays this in the in the introduction by Conrad Kellen. Um, where he says, <clears throat> modern propaganda cannot work without education. A little thus, thus, thus reverses the widespread notion that education is the best prophylactic against, against propaganda. On the other, uh, on the contrary, he says education, or what usually goes by that world, word in the modern world, is the absolute prerequisite for propaganda. In fact, education is largely identical with what Alul calls pre-propaganda, the conditioning of minds with vast amounts of incoherent information already dispensed for ulterior purposes and posing as facts and as education. Alul follows through by designating intellectuals as virtually the most vulnerable of all to modern propaganda for three reasons. One, they absorb the largest amount of secondhand unverifiable information. Two, They feel a compelling need to have an opinion on every important question of our time and thus easily succumb to opinions offered to them by propaganda on all such indigestible pieces of information. Three, they consider themselves capable of judging for themselves. They literally need propaganda. (laughs) Guilty as charged on all counts. I mean, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. So to James' point about when this was written uh, and this being a a kind of maybe the the premier uh, work of media theory of the radio age. That notion of propaganda is principally a kind of harmonizing, uh, and and I don't want to overstate that because the book is both a, a broad theoretical account and also you know quite detailed. And Elul is constantly making the point that propaganda works both in these sort of overarching ways and then also uh, by targeted means that there are different propagandas aimed at different groups and that uh, and that they work in somewhat different ways but insofar as this is a kind of the the media theory that emerges really from the Second World War and from the 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 era of radio where television televisual propaganda mm-hmm. is still nascent, um, right, but it, it's it's also as sort of like things like the family, the village, the parish, the brother, like, you, you, you know, <laughs> these things are sort of weakening, right? Trade associations. Before, you know, sort of in, in it, you had these much more local associations. It's not that the individual was freer before, right? Um, but that his responses were determined by his local environment and by his restrictive group and very little by broad ideological influences or collective psychic stimuli, right? And so in the modern era, we have individuals, right? With, with He no longer has a tra- traditional place in which to live and he's no longer geographically attached to a fixed place or historically to his ancestry. An individual thus uprooted can only be part of a mass. He is on his own, and individualistic thinking asks of him something he has never been required to do before, that he, the individual, become the measure of all things. Thus, he begins to judge everything for himself. In fact, he must make his own judgments. He's thrown entirely on his resources. Um, He goes, in theory, this is admirable, but in practice, what actually happens? 
the individual is placed in a minority position and burdened at the same time with a total crushing responsibility. And so that's a fertile ground for yeah, but so but Elul's point is not just about the uh, the kind of social process by which you know you you find the the individual within the mass rather than the let's say a person within the community. It's also that propaganda specifically has to address that identity formation. So, and this is from the first part of the book that we're not, you know, technically talking about here, but it sets up what comes later. The idea is that for propaganda to work, it has to flatter that individual's sense of their own individuality while corralling them into the efforts of the group. But I know, James, I I am, why I bring up the radio thing is like, this is... Um, and by the way, just before I forget the Elul book I was thinking of that gets far less attention and is a, a difficult book, frankly, is the humiliation of the word, um, which is a more explicitly, um, religious work, but also concerned with, uh, some of these same questions, but the, the evolution of, uh, the evolution of propaganda in both its purposes and its effects moves away, I think, in very profound ways from some of what Elul is outlining here while still adhering to some of the broad principles of the radio age. In other words, like there is a distinctive, I think, uh, perhaps you would say more imagination driven form of propaganda that mm-hmm. takes hold in the the televisual age that is distinct in some ways from the radio age and then digital propaganda is something again different um radio propaganda what did you mean by that when you identified it that way well yeah so you know after um after the the nightmare of of the radio age um at least in europe it was a pretty bad time uh the uh the nascent ruling class and it's uh it's a network of um of experts wanted to understand how uh nobody really saw it coming that the wonders of radio would literally result in dictatorial government cropping up everywhere um and then uh in in the wake of world war ii um as television was coming onto the scene, uh, you know, uh, outfits like the Ford Foundation wanted to understand uh, that media form too. And, you know, it was always sort of a game of, of catch up. It was reminiscent of, you know, Norbert Wiener's warning, the godfather of cybernetics, <clears throat> that the, the rules of the game are changing faster than even experts at the game can keep up with them. And, you know, that sort of counsel is one that says, hey, maybe we should slow down a little bit before we create processes that we are incapable of understanding. But, you know, that's not that's not what's happened. Uh, We have accelerated into ever more total systems of technology. And so I want to link up what you were referencing from from earlier in the book with a couple lines from the section of the effect on the churches. Uh, Elul says propaganda is a total system that one must accept or reject in its entirety. Uh, he says that as soon as the church avails itself of propaganda, 
it's uh, what what happens is a reduction of Christianity to the level of all other ideologies or secular religions. It will be just another doctrine. He says the media that possess in themselves all their effectiveness and contain in themselves their own presuppositions and ends cannot be put in the service of Jesus Christ. They obey their own rules, and this cannot be changed in the slightest, either by the content of their transmissions or by theological reasoning, despite what simplistic reasoning can make some people believe. So, you know, these are clues as to what it really means for a technological system or environment uh, to be totalizing. Um, I think sometimes, you know, analysts can be tempted to stop the analysis at saying, well, it's a total system, and you know, it's a totalitarian. These things are, are obviously bad and don't need to be sort of, you know, we don't need to understand any more deeply what's going on than to say that they're total or totalizing or totalitarian. Uh, and what it seems to me, you know, looking at, looking at uh, the way that Elul highlights how anything from Christianity on down that is drawn into the, the totalizing system is made interchangeable with everything else that's in, within the system, that's interoperable. Um, and I think, you know, what really distinguishes a, a technological system, a comprehensive total system, is, is that its logic, its, its prime directive, so to speak, is, is interoperability. Um, you look at the way people interact with uh, digital technology today, uh, perhaps most of what they experience is really invisible machines, um, things that can you know, basically be in two places at once and can communicate with one another instantaneously uh, really violating the rules of human spacetime uh, and doing things that until a handful of years ago were considered to be restricted to, to spiritual beings, to angels and demons. The machines that uh, have conquered our world um, are increasingly interoperable uh, and demand interoperability from us, uh, increasingly so. Um, yeah, whereas what, what people want, what people yeah. want is incommensurability. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, that's the promise of Christianity is that, is that God himself created you to be incommensurable. You have, you know, you, you there's one you, there's only ever going to be one you. Um, and that body and soul, that, that incommensurable you that has been created is a precious gift. That is fundamentally at odds with the, the operant logic of a, a, a complete technological system. Uh, and I think, you know, the rules warnings in that regard have only been more, more fully developed out today. Right. So, I mean, this is the idea that if the church wants to bear witness in the world, it has to do, do so in a way that is, that fits with its vision of the human. Right. And he says, you know, from the moment the church uses propaganda and uses it successfully, it becomes unremittingly a purely sociological organization. It loses the spiritual part. At that point, is chosen power over truth. You know, because, of course, the whole point of propaganda is that it's not, it's not that I, I tell you something and want you to respond with your own creative faculties. Rather, the point of propaganda is to see the same idea 
in as many heads as possible, right? Sort of like a digital copy being downloaded. And, you know, I did the, I did the spiritual exercises about a year ago with a priest over the course of, uh, over the course of over a year. It was a phenomenal experience that was about sort of regular reading and reflection and, and journal writing and meeting with him once a week to have these sort of intense discussions, right? You know, they were directed, but very open-ended in where they could end up or, or, you know, or go. And that felt like a, first and foremost, an intensely human way of, of encountering these things. So I had that deeply personal, very intimate uh, experience. And when I'm thinking about sort of <laughs> the way that we think about religion on a mass scale, uh, I was looking at these studies where in the 1990s, between 1991 and 1998, when the Manson record came out, the number of Americans claiming no religious preference doubled from 7% to 14 Of course, there's been increasing rise of the nuns. The nuns. Yeah. And there are a variety of things, but the authors of the study, Michael Houghton, Claude Fisher, note that religious skepticism proved to be an unlikely explanation. Most people with no preference hold conventional religious beliefs despite their alienation from organized religion. In fact, these unchurched believers made up most of the increase in the no religion preferences. Politics, too, was a significant factor. The increase in no religion responses was confined to political moderates and liberals. The religious preferences of political conservatives did not change. This political part of the increase in nuns can be viewed as a symbolic statement against the religious right. And of course, there are ways in which, as politics has become bound up with religion, the religion part of it sort of fades out. And to my mind, the, you know, like having a sort of religious core hopefully protects you from that. It allows... Yeah, but Alul's point is that you... It becomes more and more difficult to preserve the religious core under technological conditions. That it's not simply that the church is faced with a dilemma insofar as it feels the, the pressure to compete with propaganda. Uh, and might try, you know, perhaps naively to harness the forces of propaganda to, to proper ends, not realizing that the participation in propaganda is not simply a matter of volition. It's also a, a question of in what kind of spaces, in what delimited spaces is genuine religious communication possible? And in what kind of spaces is communication going to be overwhelmed by the the inherent conditions of the medium through which one is communicating. It's also that the people who are living under those conditions, who may not be as enlightened as, uh, you know, not just Phil, but like who, who maybe haven't had the chance to do spiritual exercises to prepare themselves in a, in a you know, a, a kind of robust way, that it becomes more and more difficult to reach them. So the dilemma for the religious is that it appears that the only thing powerful enough to pierce through the effect of uh, secular propaganda is some kind of even greater propaganda that can rouse man from his, his torpor. And yet the participation in that reduces the religious to a, a kind of initially a glorified version of the secular or an 
embossed version of the secular and over time to just another ver to not even embossed anymore just a, a an essentially interoperable version of the secular i think maybe that is a distinctly uh christian view i think you could find there are strong jewish theological counter arguments that we don't need to get into all of here but i mean it's worth worth considering because they have to do in part with the certain strains of uh, Judaism, particularly Hasidic Judaism, that, that, you know, understand man to be existing continually and indefinitely in both a bestial and a godly state. And so um, don't view the technological in the same terms necessarily because the godly is always accessible. The higher state is always accessible through individual means. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't. Uh, I mean, I think the, the, the beastly and godly state is very much a part of the Christian idea too. Right? I think of David But Alul's idea mm -hmm. that, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe I'm, I think part of this with Elul also is that his Christianity is, it seems to me indivisible from his anti-statism. Yeah. Right. Like he's a Christian anarchist because he he views the state as being uh, blasphemous and and as being like the state is always is always the Roman Empire. In some ways, yeah. Right? Well, like, there's an interesting, I think, which, which Roman Empire? <laughs> the bad one. Yeah. Huh? The revealing uh, bit uh, where he says the force of propaganda is a direct attack against man. Thus, the communists, who do not believe in human nature but only in the human condition, believe that propaganda is all-powerful, legitimate, whenever they employ it, and instrumental in creating a new type of man. American sociologists scientifically try to play down the effectiveness of propaganda because they cannot accept the idea that the individual, that cornerstone of democracy, can be so fragile and because they retain their ultimate trust in man. And it's funny, too, because this stuff gets along with like the, the efficacy of propaganda. I mean, I, I'm on the side of, of siding with people and not being quite so pessimistic about uh, technology. But there's a way in which, you know, you, you saw this around the like Russia Facebook stuff after the Trump election where uh, a certain type of individual was particularly kind of intellectual, was very drawn into the idea that like, the masses were extremely easily herdable sheep via targeted Facebook ads done by Russia, which always seemed very dubious to me. And I think that it operated as a kind of excuse and also just another thing to be freaked out about when it didn't seem particularly plausible to me that that sort of, you know, Russian Facebook ads played such a determinative role in the election, but rather sort of, you know, just a lot deeper problems in, in American society and politics. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, <clears throat> this theological stuff is in some respects quite, quite complicated or subtle. Uh, but in others, you know, I, I think we can draw some, some broad based conclusions. Uh, Gnosticism, the heresy of Gnosticism has been present in biblical religion for a long time. And to my mind, it seems to be a kind of heresy that, is very difficult or perhaps even impossible for <clears throat> mere mortals to uh, eliminate 
from our lives. And so while, you know, I'm coming from a standpoint where Eastern Orthodox theology seems to me to be the, the most important place to lay emphasis in thinking these things through, uh, the reason for that is, is because the, the best weapon, I think, spiritual weapon that we have against the kind of Gnosticism that you see in, in communism, you know, communism East or West, uh, where the idea is that the energy of the soul can be replaced with the energy of the machine. And the energy of the machine is what will emancipate uh, our, our consciousness or our godlikeness from the limits of our created form. Uh, the best spiritual weapon we have against that is an understanding, is remembering the foundations of the cosmos are not mathematical in the way that someone like Bertrand Russell would, would think that they were mathematical. That if you, if you look at the, the, the foundations, what you discover is mystery beyond human comprehension, beyond the ability of consciousness to sort of master and vivisect on the operating table. Um, the, the longing to build, to build a, a God of our own creation through technology, uh, is one that will never really, is one that cannot be satisfied that trying to embark on that project will always end in tears and result in catastrophe because what what Umberto Eco calls the the quest for the perfect language is a fool's errand. There is there is no perfect language open to us and accessible by us. Uh, certainly not math. Certainly not code. And the the dream of constructing uh, an artificial paradise, an infinite paradise, is one that that will forever remain a dream. And the closest approximation is that we build something that's capable of killing us all. That, that's an almost, you know, I, I mean, you end on the uh, dire apocalyptic note, but in a sense, that's a, a hopeful reading, James. I'm, I'm, um, I'm pleased you've brought it here. No, I, I, I'm, I'm very hopeful. I mean, you know, this yeah. is, just comes straight out of the, the, the teaching of Christ that, you know, the, the wheat and the tares cannot be separated out by by human hands, uh, that this is something that we have to patiently wait for, for God the Father to sort out. Uh, you know, he was quite clear, you know, uh, not, even, not even he claimed to know when the end time would be. Uh, certainly not, you know, us, us mere mortals, um, and certainly not something that we can engineer and orchestrate to, uh, to leverage ourselves out of all the things that, that annoy us about our mere humanity. But, you know, okay, so we will be saved ultimately uh, by our our ultimate imperfectibility, that this will end in tears is actually uh, mankind's salvation. But the the process of getting to that failure unto salvation looks to me something like not the perfection of language, but the mystification of language to conjure up uh, a, a kind of 
esoteric language, a Gnostic language of perfection that relies not on the refinement of language, certainly not on the elevation or transcendence of meaning, but on the, on the stupefaction of individuals and the mystification of language, which at this point occurs through algorithmic processes, which, you know, uh, handily enough, accomplish both at the same time. The algorithms make us stop thinking for ourselves and confuse us about what language is to begin with. I mean, it's interesting to me that you identified Gnosticism a moment ago in this context with communist uh, political systems, which certainly practiced uh, their own form of Gnosticism, but it's a distinctively American thing too, right? Like without going so far as to accept the whole Harold Bloom uh, Gnosticism as the true American religion, by which he means the American idea of being uncreated, uh, uh, the American soul being in some sense uncreated, equal to God and accessible only through a, a kind of esoteric revelation. You know, I think the, the, the way in which it's more consonant in an immediate sense with the communist version, the, the way that the democratic, American democratic version of Gnosticism pairs with that communist idea of perfectibility is through this kind of ever-increasing rate of technological improvement and, uh, you know, like a, a pattern in nature that we're going to detect. Right, but also that that's going to guide us. I mean, to, to, so, you know, to make it more specific, think of like the, you know, I believe in science, right? Or the, the you know, Joe Biden campaign, science over fiction, which is a fiction writer yes. I took as an insult. Um, but, you know, the, the idea there is science is providing you with public policy answers, which of course it can't actually do. And I remember sitting in on Carranza was giving like a, a, a virtual talk about school, you know, things. He's Richard like, Carranza. Yeah. Former head of the New York city public school system. Exactly. And he's and like, a, and a schmuck of the first. Order. <laughs> yeah. And he goes, you know, we're going to follow science, not science fiction. Right. Which was clearly like the tagline that they'd, uh, prepared for themselves to be trotted out. And it was incredibly right. annoying, you know, because it was like, look, there are obvious value judgments and political deliberation going on, right? You know, when the, the CDC puts out different guidelines from the American Academy of Pedi Pediatricians in terms of, you know, reopening schools in response to the pandemic, right? That's not because the science is different, but they have different institutional priorities, one which is focused on disease spread, the other on the welfare of children. And, you know, New York City's reopening schools is going to be not just about science, but, it, you know, uh, what workers, you know, have stronger unions and what different political interests. And, like, the, that's how it should be. I am as frustrated as anyone when somebody seeks to ignore what seems to be fairly obvious scientific things that science can tell us about our world, which should be public policy issues, right? When people are downplaying, you know, in the early stages of COVID, uh, when people are overplaying it, right? At the same time, when folks are ignoring sort of climate change or, uh, or whatever, all that stuff obviously is a problem, but it also annoys me when sort of, you know, 
I believe in science becomes a kind of mantra where the, you know, what it really means is there's a set of public policy decisions that I'd like to see enacted in the world, many of which I probably agree with, but which I feel like I don't have to argue for. But all of this is mystification. Yeah. I mean, first of all, the idea that there's some like, reasonable common sense bedrock of science that the reasonable people can fall back on, if not for the nuts, I think is a faulty premise. I don't buy that. Um, but I, I, yeah, I, I don't, I, that, that I don't, I think that that's a, a way of pinning this just on uh, like zealots or nut jobs or Carranza types or whatever. But in fact, like there's not a there's not a common sense bedrock of science when it comes to super complex processes that have to be instantaneously translated into public policy, which is why a deliberative process that values human reason ought to trump even things that appear to be conjuring up a common sense consensus. But by the way, James was talking about like spiritual tools from the Christian tradition. And yeah. when we're talking about this, I was thinking that in the Jewish tradition, this story that we've brought up before where there's like a group of rabbis who are arguing and uh, this is from the... That's how all the stories start. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, this is from the Talmud and you know one of them is Rabbi Eliezer who's like always right but he's outnumbered right and and so you know he gets frustrated and he's like you know if I'm right you know have the the carob tree uproot itself and the carob tree uproots itself and the others say no proof can be brought out, brought, out, brought from a carob tree and the carob tree goes back to its place and then you know he's he's like uh, let the stream of water prove it if the halakha agrees with me. And the stream of water flows backwards. And the other rabbis say, no proof can be brought from a stream of water. And so the water returns to its proper direction. Again, he goes, if the halakha agrees with me, let the walls of the study hall prove it. And the walls start to fall. But Rabbi Yehoshua rebukes them, saying, when scholars defeat each other in law, what is it for you? And so in honor of Rabbi Yeshua, they didn't fall, but nor did they stand again in honor of Rabbi Eliezer. And then eventually a heavenly voice comes and cries out, what is it for you with Rabbi Eliezer, seeing that in every place the halakha agrees with him? But Rabbi Yehoshua stood up and exclaimed, it is not in heaven, from Deuteronomy. What did he mean by this? The Torah had already been given out at Mount Sinai. We pay no attention to a heavenly voice because thou hast long since written in the Torah at Mount Sinai, after a majority must one incline, Exodus 23, 2. And so later, one of the rabbis meets Elijah, and he asks him, what did the Holy One, blessed be he, do in that hour, right, when, when they rebuke the heavenly voice? And the Holy One laughed and smiled, replying, my sons have defeated me. My sons have defeated me. And it's... James, uh, the, yeah. the reason that I love that story is the rabbis right right like god himself agrees with him <laughs> and yet it's the argument right that they're not going to go to some sort of final proof that's going to squash the argument it's about that process and that process is is valued and the sort of disputation and and real human exchange that's going on is the thing that is valued and so when they reject a, a sort of 
heavenly voice with all the correct answers coming in and trying to definitively settle it, right? Which would be smothering that kind of just human process of struggle with the deepest questions. They rebuke him and God is delighted. My creatures have defeated me. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that the, the triumph of our machines has forced a reckoning with the fact that argument today is not going to save us. Uh, explanation is not going to save us. Uh, you watch all these guys pile onto Twitter every day and, you know, with this post, this is the post, you guys, like, this is the one that's going to sort of like blow your mind and make you understand everything at once. And, you know, information overload, you don't have to worry about that anymore. Um, this one weird trick is going to cause you to have a sort of gestalt experience of, of total comprehension. And that's just not the way that it works. Um, better to have silence, better to have a refusal to debate um, than to get sucked into, you know, this, this false promise or this idolatry of explanation, this, you know, this, this sort of self-imposed delusion that we can, we can uh, uh, explain our way out of our predicament. Well, that's not debate, um, right? At the si- that's not debate that's yeah, actually well, happening. Like, I value debate. I, I value argument. But that's not, I mean, like, you know, posting a YouTube video that's like, Bill Maher destroys whoever, and then, you know, somebody else has done another cut. With I don't, I don't think yeah. that's what James is talking about. This is not like the Bill Maher gets owned by, or Bill Maher owns. This is the, like, uh, Twitter cleverness, like the ultimate cleverness that's going to crystallize the meaning of all things in, in the one perfect tweet, uh, which is maybe a cousin of the thing you're describing. But in either case, I, I don't know. I've, uh, I have increasingly found um, debate in the kind of meritocratic liberal sense to be useful only within very specific contexts and institutions and more often than not uh, a self-defeating practice in contexts where it's no longer valued or where it's where it no longer has a kind of executive decision-making function well so one of the the better McLuhan quotes is uh there's a deep-seated repugnance in the human breast against understanding the processes in which we are involved that would you know, basically that would require uh, far too much responsibility, uh, more responsibility than people want to take. Uh, if you go look at the, the etymology of the word responsibility, uh, this is a very, you know, very old root word, probably goes back 10,000 years or so. And the meaning of that word is the repeated pouring out of sacrificial libations. So the word responsibility is a theological word. It basically means, you know, who are you in the practice of worshiping? Who or what? And that, you know, that is not a product of, of dialectic or explanation or making explicit. Uh, that is a, a ritual act of service that is performed to an ultimate, an ultimate figure. And so while, you know, while McLuhan's coming from a sort of Catholic tradition where, you know, understanding is good and we can know the whole, what's, what's more pressing, I think, for Americans is to understand that if we want to 
preserve our character as the people who we are, if we want to preserve our our form of government and the culture that that is associated with that form of government, we're a large republic. And in a large republic, there has to be a certain amount of of salutary churn and a free association and active movement of bodies in space. And with technology progressed to the level that it has, that means that ordinary people, without knowing it all, without being credentialed explainers, without being credentialed um, academic ethicists or engineers, ordinary people need to get their hands back on our most powerful technologies and tell compute what to do tell compute to do things that strengthen our way of life, that protect our form of government, that protect our humanity and cause us to remember and reinforce our humanity. Uh, That's what people need to be doing without uh, getting hung up on, well, am I an expert in this technology? Well, have I been sufficiently credentialed by, you know, by the people in charge as as a responsible user of this technology? The, you know, the people in charge uh, irresponsibly created these technologies and have been using them irresponsibly. And so what we need is we need people to to lay their hands on the controls here of, you know, and I think Bitcoin is a good example because it is kind of a, a world computer. And that's why I put my book out the way that I did on, on the blockchain, you know, so that the media would be the message and so that I could demonstrate to people that they're ready right now to take that step in a direction which, you know, you can spend a day or two just kind of learning the basics. And that's all you need. Uh, you don't need to to win any debates. You don't need to win any arguments. You don't need to be able to explain, uh, you know, the the whole universe of crypto inside and out. You just need to to take the step of creating memorable, valuable, soulful cultural artifacts and using our our most powerful digital technologies uh, to to share them in markets with with your people. That's, you know, that's something that that I think expresses very deeply uh, certain theological understandings. I mean, the 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 proof of work on in, in, in the Bitcoin blockchain is driven by com- uh, computers competing to solve a math problem. You know, what could be more Protestant than that? But what's at the root of it is something that is, I think, much more attuned to the the places where the human voice must fall silent and the divine voice speaks. Um, and that's something that, you know, you don't always get a lot of in, in the Protestant or even sometimes the, the Catholic traditions. Um, you get a little bit more of it, I think, out of, out of orthodoxy. Uh, but that's still, you know, 1% of, uh, of the population in the U.S. And I think that, uh, that Peter Thiel was, was on the right track when he said that it seems that today the most unorthodox thinkers are, are the orthodox in America. What what is the silence in uh, blockchain that you're referring to? Uh, there What's is the technical manifestation. I mean, consensus mechanism is uh, a kind of effervescence of communal spirit. The com- the the computation. I I get the Protestant aspect of, but where is the silence in blockchain? Well, I mean, I think the silence is 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 our silence. You know, just just start start building, start um, creating things that that allow us to regain uh, mastery, everyday mastery over our compute, um, yeah. rather than you know using technology 
uh, as a platform for waging endless propaganda wars and mounting endless strings of psyops, trying to convince, cajole, persuade. It's more important that that we just actually start getting to work, ensuring that, I mean, look, you know, free speech is is nice and free speech is oftentimes good, but uh, a world in which there's free speech but no real free association is is a malfunctioning world. Politically well, this is a loose world. point. This is a loose point, in a sense, about the dilemma facing the church, which is it's not just a question of the medium through which the church can communicate. It's also a question of the subject to whom the church is communicating. So, if the subject has been essentially enervated denatured by these technological processes, by these media, to such an extent that it seems the only way to reach them is through that same denaturing media, it presents a real problem. It's not for nothing that the that every episode of this podcast where I don't forget to say it opens with, um, may you continue to be a person, right? This has been very much on, uh, for Phil and I both, this is something that, that we're is very much on our minds, but this recapturing this insistence on personhood in the face of the inhuman, whether that inhuman is uh, technocratic inhumanism that uses human processes to dehumanize and pe- dehumanize people, or whether it's strictly mechanical dehumanization, there is a there is a at least the two-step process involved, the first being the license to escape that, which requires first, I think, an act of kind of mental escape. I don't have to be credentialed to speak, actually. It's not a crime to be an uncredentialed speaker, to have a thought. And then, terrifyingly, uh, what do I have to say? Now that I'm free, what do I have to say? And these things are in dialogue with each other insofar as the technocracy, the inhuman machine, is not something, and and I don't know, uh, James, whether you would agree with this. I, I actually I found different points of in your book where I, I felt like sometimes we were on the same page and other times we were in disagreement. For me, the machinery is not just... Uh, a superstructure imposed by the outside or, or imposed by, uh, by uh, either pernicious or inanimate forces. You know, it is in the McLuhan sense, an extension of the man. Like we built this machinery because we wanted it on some level, not at every second, not the better parts of ourselves, but the desire to divest oneself of the responsibilities of being fully human is profound. It's one of the deepest desires we have. Equally deep, you know, it's the it's the evil inclination, the desire to to be free in order to be uh, connect with one's divine essence as part of us. But the desire, you know, the the satanic or evil inclination to be inhuman is another part of us and. So, like, you, you wind up free, and then you have to say to yourself, well, what do I want to say? Now I'm on the blockchain. What do I want to say? And to me, the important thing and the counsel I would give to, uh, you know, let's say a 25-year-old terrified at the prospect of what they want to say, who's considering maybe crafting the perfect tweet 
as their response to the question of what do I want to say? Like they're really thinking about like, how do I sum up the, the zeitgeist or, or manifest the gestalt or whatever? Um, you know, the thing I would say is shut up first. You, you actually have to be quiet inside your head for a while and then, and then try to say something. The last thing anybody should do is try to speak above the din right now. And, uh, and and if you're quiet and then you say something, even if you're wrong, you're you know, right. The, uh, if you try to speak above the din, even if you're when, right, when you're I wrong. talked about valuing argument before, right? It wasn't. It wasn't like I value getting in arguments online with people on Twitter, whatever. And this is going to be the way forward. What I meant more so was I value people earnestly trying to speak things that they believe to be true and earnestly trying to communicate that to other human beings, regardless of the context in which it's done. Or, I mean, I can't really speak much about the blockchain because I, I have no idea what blockchain is, to be honest. There's a, but <laughs> there's a bit in Vaclav Havel's essay, Anatomy of a Reticence, where he's talking about the dissident perspective. Uh, and he says, a trace of the heroic dreamer, mad and unrealistic, is hidden in the very genesis of the dissident perspective. The dissident is essentially something of a Don Quixote. I believe the phenomenon dissent grows out of an essentially different conception of the meaning of politics than the prevailing one in the world today. That is, the dissident does not operate in the realm of genuine power at all. He does not seek power. He has no desire for office and does not woo voters. He does not attempt to charm the public. He offers nothing and promises nothing. He can offer, if anything, only his own skin, and he offers it solely because he has no other way of affirming the truth he stands for. His actions simply articulate his dignity as a citizen, regardless of the cost. The innermost foundation of his political undertaking is moral and existential. Everything he does, he does initially for himself. Something within, within him has simply revolted and left him incapable of continuing to live a lie. Well, are you going to make me, like, argue with uh, Czech dissidents? Uh, that hardly seems fair. <laughs> but, but, but I think it would be fair to say that, you know, there's a difference between a, a, an obligation, individual or sacred, to truth on the one hand, and on the other hand, a political calculation or a political faith that debate is constructive in liberal democracy to reach salutary political ends. And one can maintain the one while questioning the other. Like, no one thinks that debate is a constructive political process in an authoritarian system. It doesn't mean truth is unimportant in an authoritarian system, but debate in the American context, not just meaning like squabbling online, and not to say no debate, is at all valuable anymore. But the kind of debate as like the highest value, um, which was a, you know, was belonged to a particular moment, was a, a kind of mid-century American ideal and a good one and uh, had earlier precedents and, um, and had a lot going for it, but belonged to a particular social and political context without which um, it becomes less powerful, more, uh, more, more, you know, something else, not necessarily, uh, 
not necessarily any less valuable as like an expression of individual belief, but less powerful as an instrument of political conflict resolution and, um, and, you know, democratic procedure, let's say. Yeah, you, you, you go back to the, the topic of <clears throat> McLuhan's dissertation, which was the classical trivium. Um, and that's, you know, the, the word in thought, the word in speech and the, the recorded word. Um, we have lived in a world for a long time where the word in speech, rhetoric, uh, was considered to be the most powerful and the sort of the best form of the word. And ultimately, the one that, that would confer the most power on us and maybe even the one that would save us, you know, whoever has the best rhetoric uh, will rule the world and deserves to rule the world. Um, that's kind of what we got out of the, the TV era. Whoever could dream the biggest and best dreams and uh, put those dreams into the minds of uh, and into the mouths of as many people as possible uh, deserved to rule the world and did rule the world. Uh, and that's what we got. We got John Lennon's Imagine and Willy Wonka's Pure Imagination and George Lucas's Industrial Light and Magic, Walt Disney's Imagineers. That was the world we lived in. And that world is being swept away, swept away by by a technological surround where the memory of machines is more powerful and authoritative than the uh, the imaginations, the fantasies of men. So, you know, I think that that a growing share of Americans are increasingly aware that rhetoric, mastering rhetoric, beating the other guy at rhetoric is not a path that is going to lead to the kind of deliverance that they need and that they want. Uh, what Americans want is to be able to reorganize themselves on a footing that is going to preserve their humanity and their Americanness without having to fight a war against our machines, uh, without having to destroy our machines. Um, you wouldn't know it from the news, but you know this is still uh, a country where a majority of people are religiously observant um, and love, you know, sort of biblical adherence to biblical religion, um, supporters of their, their country and, and willing more or less to embrace, uh, its technology. And yet who's serving this, this large demographic of people? Uh, not many. And so for all those folks, you know, their primary preoccupation is not becoming victors on the field of rhetoric. Um, it is uh, it is associating and creating uh, uh, generative associations that allow them to rebuild on a footing that that is consonant with and, and avails itself of our most powerful technology. Okay, but uh, and that's what you know that's that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, that's what I'm doing here with with Return, the new uh, publication. And it's you know it's a membership organization. It's not just a publication, but it's a lifestyle publication. Uh, you know, this is about how to live well in a digital age. It's not about red team versus blue team. It's not about uh, sort of destroying your your adversaries on the internet by using the, the most powerful words or the best combination of the words. Um, it's much more generative and much more broad-based than that. And I think that's what people are hungry. But victors on the field of rhetoric is a different thing. I mean, I agree that that's a, that's a problem, right? You can tell when somebody's engaging in in public debate or using the tools of reason in a way that's sort of fundamentally shallow. I mean, I think of like, you know, obviously we're familiar with sort of the bad faith online arguments uh, and so on. There's also the kind of like, um, I, I think of like Ann Coulter used to do this trick 
where, which almost seems kind of outdated now, where she'd say something incredibly inflammatory. Like she referred to 9-11 widows had cut like a political advertisement in favor of a Democrat. And she referred to them as harpies and said that she'd never seen anybody enjoying their husband's death so much, right? Which is obviously just like a horrible thing to say. And then when she would go, and of course that comment provoked, you know, the horrified reaction to it among her uh, political enemies. And then she'd go on to explain herself and they'd attack her for saying that about the 9-11 widows. And she'd respond not by defending the comment, but by making a sort of like narrower rational point, which is like, you know, they're speaking on behalf of all widows, making a political attack, taking this sort of tragedy that makes it difficult to critique them um, and using it for a particular narrow political vision, which is a perfectly kind of valid argument. But of course, it was never about that particular argument, right? She had a political enemy and she wanted to insult them in as grotesque a way as possible. And everybody who followed her wanted to enjoy the cruelty of that. And then the sort of uh, recourse to rational debate was a kind of escape hatch, right? Um, and it's just, there's a lot of that desire for for cruelty and rhetorical victory and, and, and all those things, but that's that's a different thing from something that I think is genuine um, human desire and need, which is, you know, politics is the way that we organize how we're going to live together. We all have a stake in it. And many of us want to be able to express honestly what we believe, whether or not that means victory on the field of rhetoric, so much as, you know, providing your input into a kind of broader discussion about what we're going to do as a country. And I think that that is important and important to people, even when they don't win. Well, it's, it's inescapable to a degree. And I think to the degree that communications among groups of people about how to proceed are, are distributed down closer to the ground level, uh, the more fruitful mm -hmm. those discussions are going to be. Yeah, I, I also feel the, very much the transformation like... of politics into one discourse one global discourse. This is an illusion, but it's a very damaging one. Uh, and it leads toward the kind of dynamic of mimetic rivalry that, you know, Gerard and others have very clearly laid out where everything ends up turning into a duel, a, a duel for the end cool. times. Mm -hmm. We need to get away from that. And I think a lot of people, you know, and, and I've, I've seen this, you know, over several decades in politics, lulled into the, the comforting belief that if only they deliver the best speeches, if only they are the most right in speech, then they are going to become the most powerful or the most successful in the real life of politics. Right, right, uh, lulled into this sense that, you know, if, if, we, if we perfect the city in speech, then we will immediately thereafter perfect the city in real life. But it, 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 um, how many times do people have to be sort of crushed and disappointed and disillusioned by this before they give up? But it, you know, it goes beyond that because you, you were talking about sort of things at a local level, right? And one of the things about engagement in, in these communication technologies where sort of you're speaking to everyone rather than to sort of local groups and, you know, the kind of attachments are thinner is really what Alul is talking about uh, in that passage that I read at the beginning, where all of a sudden, like, you're the judge of everything. So you're supposed to have a position on on healthcare and foreign policy and 
you know, election law and all of these other facets that require, you know, intense specialization that you're not supposed to have that you then fill in like backfill with propaganda, right? Which allows you to know how you're supposed to feel about everything. Whereas, you know, in terms of what you want to actually do, you know, I'm, I'm often asked, just sort of finished a bunch of talks and things for, for the book that came out, you know, where I outline a lot of the issues that I have with, with American military policy. And the question is like, you know, what do we do? It sounds kind of depressing, right? The, the picture of how we're organized right now. Um, and how do we respond meaningfully to some of the problems that you raise? And the thing that I always say is that there are groups that are doing work on individual facets of this problem that you can join with, right? So it's not, I, the individual have a subset of opinions that sometimes I throw out into the public sphere about everything, but that there are few issues that I actually genuinely care about, that I join with other people who are organized in terms of institutions, and genuine progress benefits to individual people um, are achievable, right? And that is a much less despairing way of looking at politics. Because if you look at the, the sort of aggregate, it's easy to feel like I have no voice, I have no ability to meaningfully influence this incredibly complicated system versus like, here's some small corner of American policy or how we live together or things that are happening in our communities that matters to me. And I'm going to join with other people and part of a structured, organized effort to make changes. And that is very, very much possible, but it requires, it requires communities and institutions and structures that people build. Well, that's right. And, you know, and, and maybe not to, to make changes so much as to just do what it is that is characteristic of you and your mm -hmm. people and, and, and do and, you know, cultivate and, uh, and safeguard and, and husband, you know, in the old sense, the resources that, uh, that give people again a, an authority that they can respect over their own machines. Uh, the absolute dominance of these machines raises ultimate foundational questions about why we should bother being human at all, why we should bother doing the things and suffering the things and enduring the things and building the things that are characteristic of our human being, especially in relation to our creator. Uh, it's, you know, I mean, I, I really think like, yeah, we, we like our, our Republican form of government. We want to keep it going. But what is what is necessary to ensure that the topsoil uh, does not just get blown away um, is to ensure that people are capable of focusing on uh, the, the daily human endeavors and practices, keep our identity coherent and something that we love and cherish. Uh, and something that we can remember from one moment to the next and pass on to rising generations. So maybe we should move on so to this uh, is the, mechanical yeah, animals. This is the opportunity to talk about the yeah. Maryland Mets, in, in part because uh, that question, I think, is an animating question for um, this record. Like the, the question of what's left that is worthy of respect in the human that would compel us to remain faithful to the forms of the human rather than becoming androgynous cyborgs. Um, some dramatic enactment of that dilemma 
seems to be at the heart of the Manson project. Now, I will say I did not have positive associations with this going in. I didn't have positive associations with Manson, with this record, with the genre of music. I'm not even sure which genre. I think at the time I thought of it as like mall goth. I don't even know what I think of it as now. But I I also, to be honest with you, thought of it as like cheaply nihilistic in a way that I was both turned off by at the time and that I have lately been finding myself, I have been revisiting art that I had originally written off as cheaply nihilistic and finding that um, perhaps my reaction was engendered as much by my own hangups as by the moral failures of the art. Like I found that with Harmony Crin, for, for instance, who I have... I, I have gotten a lot more out of, like, in my late 30s than I did in my early 20s. And I think I realized that I was, like, maybe actually scared by some of this stuff or, or at least uh, pushed back from wanting to deal with it. That was not my experience with Manson this time, <laughs> time around. But I remain, I remain open uh, to it, and I, I did think that the lyrics were the lyrics were better than I remembered. He was a more his phrasing, not his phrasing as a singer, but his phrasing as a lyricist was more sophisticated than I remember. And James, I want to hear you on this, but first, you have to tell the people who only think of you as the head of um, you know America's premier fascist organizations um, about your your history as a glam rock singer and you have to give some background here on your own la trip i feel it's only fair for you to discuss this with us uh who am i to argue you know plan plan a was to uh was to speed run college and move to dc and uh join the borg land on the national security council plan a was sidetracked by um a semester in london in 1999 where suddenly it seemed to make sense rather than being a, a spy, I should just write like novels about spies. And uh, it was all of a piece, you know, this, this sort of like cool Britannia and Britpop and spy movies and models, glamour, terrorism, the jet set, millenarianism. It was all sort of bundled into one thing. The announcement of the authority of glamour in that world was something that I found to be, you know, in my very early 20s, overpowering. 
something to which I felt I owed some kind of allegiance, uh, especially when the rival path was the path of like Dick Morris or whatever, um, the path of, of going to DC and sort of prematurely aging and, you know, and that's still a way of life for a lot of people out there. Uh, so I came back from London convinced that I needed to be an artist instead of an operative in Blob, moved to LA instead of DC, attempted to write the, you know, the next buzzworthy novel. Like to what extent was that idea of glamour, right? Which drew you towards LA and away from national security and that like, that glamour that pulled in both models and like, you know, rock and roll excess and cool drugs and all that and cool Britannia. Was that its own idea of human perfectibility? Was that not a kind of uh, technological achievement? Well, the the culture was was really controlled and dominated by artists. Technology had not advanced to a point where it was um, a force that made people question why they should bother trying to be serious artists, why they should bother trying to have anything to say, not in a, in a discoursey sort of way, but in a way, in the way of revelation. Artists in the late nineties were paid very well to make very polished art that purported to reveal something of significance about who we were and what our place in the world was. Uh, and I found that to be commanding. And, um, and so I spent uh, several years in LA trying to do the novel and finishing the novel and sort of conscripting Brett Easton Ellis into reading the novel and editing the novel. 9-11 happened and sort of ruined the conceit of the novel. I didn't know what to do with it anymore. That was super painful. Um, and then, you know, this is just kind of a reflection of the times, uh, less than a year after I sort of got lost on the novel, um, I was discovered by the music director of Rolling Stone, who was my upstairs neighbor. She was suddenly managing a band that I was fronting. You know, my, my demo was being passed off to like Radiohead's manager. And I was like hanging out at, in, the, in the green room of the Napster relaunch party with Interpol and things were happening very fast. And the only rule seemed to be that um, if you were a sort of an artist who was prepared to, to translate deep feelings into something very glossy and powerful, uh, then you would be rewarded. You know, within a couple more years, um, that that moment had already passed. Uh, the moment of the late '90s was gone. Uh, suddenly, you know, the world of of mechanical animals turned into the world of you know Manson's follow-up record, Hollywood, which was much harder, much darker, much more nihilistic, much more violent. Uh, the glamour had completely drained away. It was. The America of of corn and stained and Limp Bizkit and Ozfest and Slipknot, and that just rolled, you know, as as Phil knows as well as anyone, that rolled right into sort of the America of the Iraq War um, and the America of you know sort of school shootings and nihilistic, you know, sort of angry guys who just felt that 
that everything had dried up around them, that they had no place, they had no purpose. You know, the the world of kind of you know, the beginning of, of Fight Club's cult status, um, the, the world of, of mainstream America feeling increasingly dispossessed and uh, without much beauty or comfort in the world. You know, I, I found myself kind of spun out of that world, completely misdirected from uh, where I thought I'd started out as a kind of junior intellectual. And it was a slow climb back into, you know, where I thought plan A might, might still lead. Relocated to DC, you know, went back to school for, for political theory, started a blog, um, slow baby steps that eventually uh, revealed themselves to be decent ideas. And from there, you know, I, I started to build uh, a life as, you know, as a kind of a public figure. Uh, new media was happening. It, everyone who had started a blog in D.C. in 2005 or 2006 was getting sucked up by mainstream media publications. It was the Obama age. So, you know, there was a certain kind of like, yeah, I, I mean, unseriousness. There was, it felt like, in a way, very low stakes. And the kind of collegiality that spun mm. up out of that was generally a good thing. But I think there was a sort of arrested development that set in and that uh, we're really just starting to shake off now. Well, I, I think that part of that arrested development, and I've had uh, trouble getting people to grok this when I've tried to write it, but part of that arrested development owes to the false adulthood of the post 9-11 era. And what we had in the aftermath of 9-11 and the pronouncements about the death of irony and how everything would be ultimately serious from now on was a, a grasping at a seriousness, a, a kind of intimation of the genuine crisis of humanity that was right around the corner, but that ultimately settled into pre-existing institutional configurations and particularly technocratic configurations that on the one hand symbolically glorified these figures of the serious adult world, the soldier and Marine most of all, while at the same time investing godlike power into the machinery of the surveillance state. And there is a strange symbiotic energy that courses back and forth through the kind of um, quasi-effete, uh, arrested development, campy, machismo, play-acting spirit of hipsterism on the one hand, and this extended arrested development that the country was going through on the other hand. And that's obviously, uh, I'm painting in a, with a very broad brush here, but the, the Manson album, to bring it back to that for a second, feels to me like it belonged to a moment, certainly this is true chronologically, before all of that was manifest, when there was still, before the, the need to, before 9-11 had imposed the need for adult seriousness, which was, at the time, unrealizable by the... Uh, by, certainly by the Bush White House and the, the intellectual class around it that tried to, liberal and conservative both, I should say, who, who tried to conjure this kind of adult seriousness. 
Manson is uh, from an era before that, and it sounds like it's from an era before that. I mean, it's interesting to me, James, that you make this sharp distinction with like uh, corn and limp biscuit and all that. Because sonically, one of the things that surprised me about listening to this is that it sounded kind of like the guitars sounded more like grunge guitars than I had I had expected, actually, with a few exceptions. I thought of it was going to be more sort of ministry, Nine Inch Nails, Bowie, glam stuff. But that wasn't the production didn't sound like that to me. Maybe it's Billy Corgan's influence. I take it he had something to do with this. Yeah, the, Trent Reznor had done the previous album, and they wanted to move away from him just to assert their own, you know, we can do this without him. We're not yeah, just a yeah. front for him. You know, one of the other things, by the way, just in terms of, of this, you know, this this album was number one, I think, in the Billboard charts. I saw recently, Ted Joy has an article about music being in Groundhog's Day, and the top song for the past three years has been Ed Sheeran's The Shape of You. Um, and just sort of the bizarreness of of the same song being the top song three years in a row. That's insane. Yeah, I, I, I wonder what that owes to. And, you know, Sheeran is a kind of... Well, he's very much not Marilyn Manson, right? I mean, like this... this not just the music, but I think the, the imagery is so important. The album cover is really striking. Well, let me describe how it was, it was made. So this photographer, Joseph Coltis, and this is from an article by Charlie Fox on this, wanted the album's cover to be a shocking end-of-the-century sequel to the sleeve for David Bowie's Diamond Dogs, in which Ziggy Stardust appears as an airbrushed half-man, half-dog beast, complete with ambiguous werewolf genitalia. Cultist told me that Manson was supposed to have had a sequence of dog teats on his chest, but they were deemed too weird to be erotic and switched for a lone pair of breasts. To become a wraith, he was slathered in latex and silver paint. Cultists described their mad scientist collaboration as an attempt to pinpoint a twilight zone where spooky and softcore became inextricable. The shoot was conducted at a rat-infested soundstage in Los Angeles where Tim Burton had filmed a few scenes for Ed Wood. Um, and then... Uh, he said, no amount of latex could be sculpted to endow Manson with female hips. So Dr. Frankenstein with a primitive computer program, Cultus had to slavishly graft flesh from a picture of L. McPherson onto Manson's body to create the illusion of a female creature. And so the album cover is this sort of weird, ghostly, creepy, yeah, like spooky and softcore porny kind of image that is your your entry point to this um this particular album and that and the album itself has this sort of like it's like decadent despair is a sort of dominant mode and a kind of like intensely emoting rejection of society but also kind of seeming to revel in in the nihilism at the same time mm. well yeah i mean just line after line uh Cops and queers make good-looking models. I mean, that's that's the world we live in. Uh, to to swim, you have to swallow. I don't like the drugs, but the drugs like me. Uh, all of these themes, you know, the convergence of all the uh, drugs of, in this world can't save her from technology. herself. Yeah.
right. The the uh, the obsolescence of the female by the mechanical. Um, I want to disappear. Uh, it's it is a litany of phenomena and feeling and um, and uh, experience that um, it captures as well as any one piece of art. Uh, it telegraphs um, what it is that has become commonplace today and, and what it is that people, you know, yes, increasingly recognize that we've created a monster, but increasingly, you know, want to imitate that monster and feel that they don't have much of a choice but to be absorbed into it. Um, I think that that is all kind of the legacy of that record. And I think that it was, it was uh, a, an attempt to reject not only kind of the the legacy of ministry and and Trent Reznor or whatever um, but also to reject the other kind of transformation of of uh, of, of uh, technological weaponry into entertainment which is the kind that you got in the Obama era that that was basically how our economy was restructured after the financial crisis was look you know we have a military intelligence complex that has blank checks to do military technological research and development um not just on the sort of kinetic side but especially and increasingly on the, the nsa side on the software side software is eating the world as they say well software sort of ate the, the military industrial complex um, and uh, and it became uh, received wisdom that you know better to just kind of create this Borg um, the, to, to double down on five eyes than to double down on you know sending grunts into the field or even sending like JSOC into the field. Um, and so the the pace and the directionality of technological advancement was being dictated and selected for by a military intelligence complex with endless financial resources. Uh, and the, the end of the deal that was propped up so that the, the, the American people were willing to allow this to become the new foundation of their regime was that we would basically allow these technologies to be repurposed and reskinned as entertainment. Everything from cable television to GPS to touchscreen technology um, why, you know, all of these foundational technologies to the digital world that we enjoy as entertainment was originally R&D stuff. Um, and you can understand why it happened that way. And you can understand the attractions of setting up a system that way, the incredible wealth that it generated, even if that wealth just ended up being hoarded by large organizations who don't really know what to do with it and don't want to do anything with it. Um, nevertheless, like we've seen how this process has resulted in um, weapons being repurposed to infantilize people. Wait, but th that is a world that that you know that the world of mechanical animals, for all of its critiques, didn't really anticipate, um, and can only be sort of held up as as a kind of alternative to today in its unflinching willingness to kind of confront. The, the monsters that we ourselves are. I mean, the genuine, like, there's something of uh, genuine disgust in the album, which is a, an emotion that you don't encounter so frequently in art anymore. This kind of disgust, uh, a kind of uh, disgust that both 
revels in itself and and picks definite um, subjects. But but the transformation you're describing, James, I think you know I would argue that it happens earlier than uh, than the Obama era. I think it really happens starting in, in with. I mean, it, there's going to be an arbitrariness any date you pick, but the total information awareness program, right, which is debuted and then quickly shuttered, almost instantaneously leads to the subcontracting of the program of total information awareness, which is essentially the idea that you can collate all of a person's online and telecommunications activities in one place where you can then, um, you know, run algorithms to do pattern analysis and actually do predictive analysis so that essentially you achieve full full spectrum military dominance and godlike omniscience at the same time, being that they're uh, rendered equivalents, functional equivalents in that context. Because total information awareness runs into a uh, political backlash almost immediately, the functions of total information awareness get subcontracted out to the tech companies who end up doing this work on behalf of the NSA, which is a, a kind of full circle return to their uh, their origins as products of uh, military or, or DARPA R&D initiatives. But in the same way that you're saying that the, the telecommunications platforms and the digital platforms sort of exist in this weird synergy of entertainment products and uh, tools of, of military dominance, the, the same thing is happening almost in reverse where the, the civilian applications, so-called, are granted essentially unlimited license to conduct surveillance on the world's population so that they can build a social graph that the government can then access through the back door starting essentially in 2002. I mean, it all becomes part of a single project, which is why if you're looking for the underlying structural conditions of why, like what created this monoculture, why does it seem that there's one stage on which all the world's opinions must be enacted? Uh, there are, you know, there, there, it's, not a, it's not an ontological phenomenon. There are a particular set of steps that were taken. There's an actual history to this. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't know uh, how that gets delinked to create the space for a, uh, some kind of some kind of art free of this this need to participate in the, in this, global information domination platform that doesn't also avail itself of the opportunity to exist outside of it. Like some of this is going to have to rely on new technologies. In other words, to escape this, it's going to have to rely in part. It doesn't need to be the blockchain necessarily. The blockchains really seems very promising to me or various blockchains seem very promising to me, but some form of decentralized, um, digital media is going to be essential, not necessarily to the emergence of new Marilyn Mansons, but to the emergence of art that can prefigure, uh, prefigure human dilemmas in the way that uh, 
James is saying, mechanical animals did. Well, I, I you know, I think I think that that's, that's all quite right, and we have a, an opportunity to experience, I think, a, a renaissance of. Uh, of truly religious art on that kind of, of footing. You're certainly right about the, the history here. Um, the one time that I appeared on Real Time with Bill Maher uh, was a week before the Snowden revelations broke. Uh, and I was sitting there talking about, you know, just because total information awareness got shut down doesn't mean uh, that this kind of stuff still isn't going on. And, uh, you know, I, I'm always tickled to remember that Bill was sort of mystified, you know, well, what are you saying exactly? Like, what are you claiming? And, uh, you know, I, I was just a week too early to be able to, to point at Snowden. Um, but it's true that those things uh, were, were baked in uh, that, that early on. And, uh, you know, this, uh, this desire to turn the United States of America into the entity that organizes the world's information um, was a fateful, you know, that was a fateful decision. And when you watch uh, Google transform itself from don't be evil to organizing the world's information, uh, you start to see like just how porous or even illusory the boundary between the really big tech companies and the national security state really are. Amazon Web Services, you know, they've, they're, they're not just running Netflix uh, they're running CIA and yeah, the back end of the government, um, uh, essentially. That's right. Uh, and even just, you know, NSA and GCHQ are basically are, you know, the same organization. But these things are definitely part of a single entity. Um, and this entity is something that it seems to be uh, hell bent on enclosing the planet within an apparatus that it controls. I mean, there has to be a way in a free society and in our society uh, to speak openly and maturely about these choices, where they came from and where they're leading us and how inimical they are uh, to, you know, yeah, to our form of government, uh, but also just to our, our characters as the American people and ultimately uh, to our to our humanity. Um, the road that we're being sent down is a road toward a, a unitary social credit system uh, where you are more or less required to become a cyborg uh, in order to be a, uh, a, a member in good standing of, of the regime. Human forever, baby. That's what I'm saying. James, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Uh, to our listeners, we did run a, a full Turing test on James prior to his visit. He is not a bot, we can assure you. And uh, we believe I appreciate we that believe the evidence speaks work. for itself. But uh, <laughs> for any skeptics, uh, he passed with flying colors. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius.